now, say now. You're tuned in to the Wake Up and Win podcast, and I am your host, Devon Pouncey. We are here at the Momentum Studios in the city of Portland, Oregon. Myself, and we do have a special guest here today. He is the chair of the polit- of the political science department at the, yes, I said the, Pacific University, <laughs> where I happen to be an alum myself. He is also the author of many books regarding politics in the Olympic Games. His most recent book that was published this year is the 1936 Berlin Olympics, Race, Power, and Sports Washing. And he also is just a flat-out friend of the show. He's been here before, and he's back again. None other than Dr. Jules Boykoff. Appreciate you for joining me here in studio again today. I always like when I can get you in studio. It is a great pleasure to be back in the studio with you, Devon. So thanks for having me. Absolutely, Jules. And obviously, you know, we'll get into a lot of things regarding the Olympic Games in particular. But I do want us to, to deep dive into your most recent book that, that was published that I just spoke to, again, titled The 1936 Berlin Olympics Race, Power, and Sports Sports Washing. Before we get into some of the details in the book, I want you to just kind of flat out speak to us about what is sports washing? Mm-hmm. Sports washing is when political leaders use sports to try to burnish their reputations on the world stage. And it often, in doing so, allows them to erase some of the uglier elements of society, mm. some of the repression of minority groups, for example, human rights violations, and sort of deflect attention from those and instead focus on this important leader who's standing up in front of the world to host this event. One thing that I would point out that's different about the way I talk about sports washing than maybe a lot of other people is I don't simply apply it to authoritarian regimes. Mm -hmm. I also apply it to democracies, and we can get into that. But, you know, last year, 2022, uh, for a lot of people, was the year of the sports wash. It started off with the Beijing Olympics, the Winter Olympics. And it closed off with a Qatar Men's World Cup of Soccer. And so you got the double whammy of sports washing. Both of those were from authoritarian situations. But as we'll talk about later with Los Angeles and the 2028 Olympics, you can also see sports washing in effect there. Got it. Got it. I I do want to get to this book in particular because I sort of I enjoyed the format that you wrote it in. For one, it's a pocketbook. So it's a book that felt like, you know, with me knowing you and knowing how studious you are, indeed being Dr. Jules Boykoff himself, this book was a book that you were able to sort of get straight to the point with, um, about a hundred page or so book. But I love the way that you set the stage in regards to the 1936 Berlin Olympic Games. And it it sort of felt like you wanted to establish how those games were not apolitical prior to even getting into some of the history that led to why Mm -hmm. those particular games weren't apolitical. Can you just sort of speak to how you set the stage in this book about the Berlin Games before getting to the actual history that led up to them? One of the most pervasive myths around the Olympics is that they are an apolitical event, that politics and sports don't mix when it comes to the Olympics. And that has been a myth since the very outset of the games when they were started by a French aristocrat, a plucky guy by the name of Baron Pierre de Coubertin. And Mm -hmm. he was a baron, so an aristocrat. And he 
tried to say over and over again that sports and politics don't mix in the context of the Olympics. Well, we know better than that. I mean, for starters, if you were interested in dividing out sports from politics, when you had the opening ceremonies of the games, yeah. you wouldn't have a march in by country, thereby inflaming political nationalism. You could have all the pole vaulters walk in together. I mean, that'd right. be real international solidarity, right? For sure. So the way that they're organized from the outset sort of inflame nationalism and are extraordinarily political. I mean, who gets to host the Olympics is political. The voting behind who gets to host the Olympics is political. The Olympics are political through and through. And I think if you didn't know that ahead of 1936, it's those Berlin Olympics hosted by Adolf Hitler in 1936 and his fellow Nazis that really help people open their eyes to the reality that the Olympics are political through and through. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 sort of with that, um, you spoke to during sort of speaking to like the opening ceremony of the Olympics, as you just kind of alluded to there, but you spoke to visitors not being able to detect anti-Semitism due to pressure from IOC higher-ups, which obviously the IOC has always been about keeping sports and politics separate. We all know much about the history of the Nazis um, and that of the Jews in particular, and Hitler obviously being the leader of the Nazis and the way they've mistreated the Jews in, in a plethora of ways. But could you speak to how that was sort of pushed aside? Mm -hmm. For Hitler and Germany in particular to sort of have this grandiose look amongst the way that they treated Jewish people right there in their own community leading up to those particular games. Mm -hmm. Well, Hitler, first of all, had very little interest in the Olympics. When mm. it was brought to his attention, he was like, what? Why would I want to do that? I mean, he was kind of into boxing a little bit. But if you read his work, and I actually had to read his work to write this book, he rarely mentions sport. I mean, it is just off of his radar. But his propaganda minister, Joseph Goebbels, kind of realized that, hey, this is an extraordinary opportunity for us to spread the Nazi propaganda far and wide. And he convinced mm -hmm. Hitler pretty quickly that this would be a good idea. And so they decided to do certain things, like they invented one of the traditions of the Olympics, the Olympic torch relay. And that was a Nazi creation. It, it extends all the way to the current Olympics. Mm -hmm. And the way the Nazis used it was they ran around Europe and they sort of spread the Nazi flag alongside the Olympic five rings. And they said, look how great Nazi Germany is. And a lot of the places where the torch relay went were places where they invaded after those Olympics. And yeah. like you're saying, the writing was very clearly on the wall that Jewish people were being persecuted under Hitler prior to 1936. And so there were signs in many of the areas that said, you know, Jews get out and much worse than that. And when the International Olympic Committee did a visit ahead of the Winter Olympics, which preceded the Berlin Summer Olympics, they were aghast. When they went around the area, it was called Garmisch-Partenkirchen, and they looked around and they couldn't believe some of these anti-Semitic signs that were still up. Yeah. And so they went to Hitler, the, the top of the International Olympic Committee at that time. He went directly to Hitler and said, whoa, man, you got to take down these signs. This is ridiculous. This is not the Olympic spirit. Right. And Hitler tried to brush him off like, hey, you know, when you're a visitor in somebody's country, you're, you don't, you know, tell them what to do. Just like mm. when you show up at someone's house, you don't tell them like how to cook the food or whatever. Right. And the IOC was like, no, no, you can keep your laws, but not during the Olympic Games. And that's exactly what happened. They put it on pause. Some people call it the Olympic pause. 
took down the signs that were really obviously anti-Semitic. They put them right back up as soon as the Olympics were over. But yes, the International Olympic Committee did have some influence there. And I'd say the wider lesson is that the International Olympic Committee actually does have quite a bit of influence when it comes to the host country. They often like to say they don't. We don't get involved in politics and this and that. But the Hitler 1936 example is a really good one if you want to understand how IOC really does have power. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because in that you also acknowledge there was a particular article in The New York Times um, that basically framed the plaudits and the praises that Hitler received were coming from a league being the Olympics, that were far removed from politics. Mm -hmm. Um, And they basically painted Hitler as just simply a proud host of the Olympic Games. Can you speak to how maybe the IOC even influenced that particular media narrative, being that we started to see these narratives here in the United States in publications as big as the New York Times, which is probably our biggest publication here in the States itself, that started sort of pushing these narratives of sports and the Olympics in particular being a league far removed from politics itself. You're raising a really important point when it comes to media coverage of these Olympics. And like you're saying, even the New York Times, all the news that's fit to print, one of the most, if not the most prestigious newspaper in the United States now and then, yeah, was singing the praises of Hitler left and right. I mean, when you look back at that media coverage, it's kind of shocking how they're heaping on the praise And they just don't stop. They say these Olympics were tremendously successful. Hitler has to be seen as the most important leader in Europe, if not the entire wider world. And it was a big factor in getting people in the United States who were reading that newspaper to think, oh, maybe it's not such a big deal. I've heard some really bad things around his anti-Semitism, but the way the New York Times is covering him in the Olympics makes it seem like there's no problems whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. Can you speak to how racism prior to, again, just sticking to sort of the format of the book, we obviously established how you sort of painted the picture of the opening ceremonies of the games and how it immediately threw away or pushed aside the narrative that, or should have at least pushed aside the narrative that politics in the Olympic Games don't mix. But there was racism and social inequities that took place prior to the Olympic Games uh, that took place in Berlin in 36 that led to sort of the culture and sort of how it was that the Olympic Games in 36 became so politically charged. Can you just kind of speak to sort of some of that back history and how racism in particular permeated the the Olympic Games prior to the games that took place in 36. Absolutely. Well, the Baron that I mentioned, Baron Pierre de Coubertin, mm-hmm. was a straight-up racist, the guy that fun, uh, founded the Olympics. And he had things to say. He actually said, let the African countries into the Olympics because it will help them deal with the thousand jealousies of white men that they have. This is in the 1920s yeah. when he's saying stuff like this. So what I'm suggesting to you, Devon, is that racism was baked into the very Olympics from the outset. Now, I know some people like to say, they've said it to me, oh, he was just a man of his times. He certainly lived in his times, Devon, but I think that is letting him off way too easy. There were plenty of people in the 1920s who did not hold those kind of racist visions that the Baron did. And it wasn't just that. I mean, he was a sexist. He was a straight-up sexist. The Baron did not want to include women in the Olympics. He said that their only role was to place the crowns on the heads of the victorious men or Mm. to produce baby boys who could ultimately be in the Olympics. So he was sexist as well. He was classist. I mean, there was a, a rule in the beginning of the Olympics that said that if you were a working person, you couldn't participate in the games. Yeah. So if you were a bricklayer, if you were a musician, 
you were considered a professional and you couldn't come into the Olympics. And so all of that, that classism, that sexism, that racism built the foundation upon which Hitler and the Nazis came along and said, okay, we can do this with the Berlin Games. Yeah, yeah. It's so interesting you say that. And and just sort of thinking about also there were some other theories that you spoke about that were sort of these like anthropology theories. Mm-hmm. And you said in particular that they firmly formed the foundation of the Berlin Games. Um, can you speak to some of those theories as well that helped again, form the the games in 36 in Berlin. Absolutely. I mean, one of the hidden histories of the Olympics goes back to 1904, the Olympics in St. Louis, Missouri. And at those Olympics, now these Olympics were very different. They were spread out over many months. In fact, some people that won medals at these Olympics in 1904 in St. Louis didn't even realize they had won the medal until many years later. It was super disorganized. But one of the side events at the 1904 Olympics in St. Louis was this thing called the Anthropology Days, also called by the organizers the quote-unquote Special Olympics. And what the Anthropology Days did was it took the racist ideas of a anthropologist and mixed them up with a guy who was more involved in sports and said, we're going to take indigenous people from around the world and we're going to introduce them to these sports that they've never done before. And we're going to just sort of tell them the basic rules in English, by the way, Devon. So yeah. like, these people didn't know what the <laughs> hell was going on, right. of course, because they don't necessarily speak English. For fluently. sure. And then we're going to put them on the starting line and they're going to race against each other. And the whole point, it was a pre-cooked point, was that we're going to show that white people are superior when it comes to athletics because we're going to teach all these native people these these games and these sports and these running events. And then they're not going to perform as well as the highly trained white people that we adore so much that are going to be participating in the 1904 Olympics. Right. Some incredible things happen. I mean, like they put people, all these native people from around the world on a line, did like the 100 meter dash. And instead of like pushing through the tape at the end, they stopped for each other. They waited for each other, and they all pushed through the tape co- collectively together. Right. So there was no one individual winner. Yeah. Well, for me and you, we're like, wow, that's so interesting. What a fascinating way to think about sports and competition, the collectivity, the possibilities of that. Well, for these racists who organized the anthropology days, it was just evidence of their theory that oh, see, all these indigenous <laughs> people are inferior. They don't get it like we do, right? That so, is flimsy evidence, my yes, friend. <laughs> yes, yes, sir. And you know, it's not just that. I mean, one of the other things that I chart in the book are the rise of these sort of uh, racist theories around sports yeah. um, and that are considered some of the best science of the times that we look back on now that are just like absolutely ridiculous and the sort of contortions that these scientists had to put themselves into to demonstrate for their minds that uh, white people were still the superior athletes of the world. Uh, they would like use per capita um, assessments to figure out that, oh, actually like Norway would have gotten more uh, medals than the United States if you think about it per capita. I mean, they right, were really right. twisting their brains around there. For sure. In fact, it was so bad that actually, you know, Hitler and the Nazis, they studied what was happening in the United States. And Hitler, in in a lot of his writing, talked about how wonderful a job the United States did in suppressing the quote-unquote redskin. That's from Hitler's writing. Right. He he actually felt like they put him in cages and did a brilliant job. Uh, But in some ways, Hitler felt like people in the United States had actually gone too far. They're like, too much with your racism. It's too obvious, right? (laughs) Yeah. So Hitler and the Nazis were admiring U.S. racism from afar. And I should say, a lot of U.S. companies— helped the Nazis from IBM to Ford Motors to you name it. I mean, they were all just helping the Nazis. I mean, 
Ford. I won't go on and on, but one just no, example go on and on. This. Please go on and on. Okay. <laughs> no, we I got time. Some of your listeners <laughs> might drive Ford cars, and I regret to inform you that Henry Ford uh, was a massive Nazi fan, and and the feelings were mutual. So at that point, uh, Hitler had only given two of these special awards. Fascists are always giving each other awards. It's just one of these things. He'd only given two awards, uh, this special award to people, uh, two awards for people outside of Germany at that time. One of those people was Benito Mussolini, got this special award for greatness, and the other was Henry Ford. Wow. So, I mean, these guys were yeah. tight. They were, it was a mutual admiration society. And like I say, the Nazis in some ways felt like that we'd gone too far in the United States. And I think that's worth sort of slowing down for a second and just realizing we're talking about the 1930s in the United States, some three decades before the civil rights legislation of the 1960s. Yeah. And so there was incredible racism here, and the Nazis could do what about a re pretty plausibly and say, oh, you're worried about us? Look over in the United States where black people are treated that way, where yeah. native people are treated that way. And it was actually true. Yeah, yeah. And can you kind of speak more to like some of the anti-blackness that we may have seen through the history of racism that permeated through the Olympic Games leading up to that particular those particular games and leading up to Hitler to be able to make a point mm -hmm. that, hey, look at how the black people are getting treated basically in the South, in the United States, in America. Don't look my way about what it is that we have going on with the Jews here in Germany. But could you just kind of, you know, speak more about the sort of anti-blackness happening here in the States and how that connected to anti-blackness that took place throughout the Olympic Games as well? Absolutely. So... In this time period of the athletes who went to the Berlin Olympics and before that time period, there were numerous very successful African-American athletes. I mean, I think everyone who's listening will know of Jesse Owens, who did right. so well at the Berlin Olympics, winning four gold medals. But he bumped into racism everywhere he went in the United States. He grew up extremely poor. He was the only one of his many siblings to go to college because everybody else had to get work just to support the family in a basic way. Uh, his dad bumped from menial position to menial position. There just weren't opportunities then. So when he right. got to go to college and went to Ohio State University to participate in track, this was a huge, huge deal. And it was very much outside the norm. When he went there, he found himself in an extremely racist situation. I mean, let me put it to you this way. One of the coaches at the 1936 Olympics, a guy named Dean Cromwell, he was also the track and field coach at USC, but he was one of the coaches in charge in Berlin in 36. Five years after those Olympics, he said that one of the reasons why African-Americans did so well in the 1936 Olympics and do so well in track and field in general at that time was because they were not that far removed from the jungle. Yeah. Unlike white people who had been away from the jungle for so long. I mean, just <laughs> this is a guy who's a coach at USC. Wow. Coached these athletes in 36. Yeah. Five years after their success, he's saying, batshit crazy racist shit like that wow so if that guy's saying it you can only imagine what people are saying in the lead into those 1936 olympics I, i'll be honest there was a part that you, you you did speak about earlier in the book jesse owens and how um the gestapo followed him around mm -hmm. um in berlin at the berlin games i believe mm -hmm. it was and well yeah definitely the berlin games and there was a piece where it was kind of not funny in in terms of like overarching, but it, it kind of made me think about a conversation that I've once had with many people and that you've been privy to, but how basically they followed him to keep him away from white women. Exactly. 
Exactly. And, and I think it's interesting not to get away from the Olympic Games here and not to dive deep into, like, as a black man in particular, how this can affect and impact sort of that relational dynamic between black men and white women. And, you know, obviously when you have certain things come up and again, I've grown so much just in how I view things when it comes to like sexual misconduct, if you will, with black men and white women, but just knowing sort of the risk that he was at being followed by police because they wanted to make sure that those European women, if you will, Mm -hmm. wouldn't be in contact with people like Jesse Owens, who was black. And if those women did come into contact with Jesse Owens, all they got was a slap on the wrist citation. Jesse Owens was going to probably lose his life Mm -hmm. had it come to a point where he made contact with any of those European women. The kind of good thing is he was followed by the Gestapo, so it more than likely didn't happen because had it happened, we all know how that probably would have ended. But the fact that he even had to be followed by them because they wanted him to stay Mm -hmm. away from European women was was kind of a, a crazy thought to hear about. But also I do think leads to some of the distrust that you hear today when you do have many black athletes that are basically, you know, alleged that they have mistreated white women in a particular way. It's not my way of saying that that can't happen, Mm -hmm. but it is my way of saying where that leads to certain skepticism that we sometimes are afraid to talk about or acknowledge, but you have history like that, that I had, that I think leads to that skepticism in particular. Yeah. It's really interesting point you're making. And one thing I just want to say is Jesse Owens was tremendously popular among everyday people in Germany. Yeah. They weren't all just necessarily like rabid racists like the Nazis running around talking trash about black people, native people, all people, you know, Jewish people. He was really popular. Everywhere he went, people wanted to see this guy. Yeah. And so the Gestapo just wanted to keep him away because if he was interacting with people, everyday people in Germany, they'd be like, yeah, he's just a normal, very nice guy. For sure. And so that could really screw up their bigger plan outside of the Olympics of just like extreme racism and these plans that they had uh, for for Jewish people. And, you know, the also well, the Gestapo didn't stop there. I mean, they definitely monitored uh, Jesse Owens, but they were also really particular about the athlete village where the mm. Olympians stay during the games. And they intercepted all mail that was going there really? because a lot of people were mailing cards to Jesse Owens and these other Olympians saying, look, I don't know if you guys have heard, but like, it's really bad. And what's going on here? Can you raise your voice if you win? Ooh. But the Gestapo set up a postal unit that Ooh. intercepted all of them and they didn't make their way to to these athletes. So. Right. Because had it made its way to those athletes, you probably would have seen more boycotts, more protests, more. Wow. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yep. They wow. stopped. Yeah, there was not going to be a 1968 John Carlos Tommy Smith yeah. moment on the medal stand if and the Nazis Berlin. could help it. You wow. Know? And of course, it was a totally different time period like we're For talking sure. about. 60s yeah. versus the 30s. 30s, right. But, but you never know if you got this credible information, what somebody might have done with it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well I do want to kind of even speaking somewhat to that away from Jesse Owens in partic- to particular, particular, spit it out, Devon, um, Jim Thorpe. You talked about Jim Thorpe and his dynamic with Avery Brundage, mm-hmm. who was the successor of 
the Baron. Mm-hmm. I, I say his name for me again. De, de Cooper. Say it again. For Baron Pierre de Coubertin. De Coubertin. There we go. <laughs> Which I don't care if I would have butchered his name anyway for many of the things he stood for. But anywho, following him as the head of the IOC was in particular Avery Brundage. And Avery Brundage competed against that of Jim Thorpe. Jim Thorpe was native. And Jim Thorpe had won some medals but had gotten those medals taken away from him. Could you sort of speak to why that was? And then could you sort of speak to why it took so long for Jim Thorpe to actually be able to receive those medals again? In fact, his children in particular had to be the ones to to receive those medals because of some Avery Brundage blockage, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you brought up Avery Brundage, or as athletes in the 1960s referred to him, Slavery Avery Brundage, because of his straight racist views, his anti-Semitic views. And he played a really important part in the 1936 Olympics. But going back to the 1912 Olympics that you're referring to that were in Stockholm, where you had Jim Thorpe, this uh, Sack and Fox and Potawatomi Native American who did so well, the indisputable star of the games. Yeah. King Gustav V of Sweden just loved this guy and sung his praises everywhere he went around Stockholm. And uh, Brundage lost to him in these events, in the decathlon and pentathlon. And in fact, Brundage actually gave up. And this was something he never really forgave himself for. He gave up when he was losing to Thorpe. Mm. Now, a lot of people think that he sort of held this grudge against Thorpe, who just after those 1912 Olympics, it was found that he was making $60 a month playing semi-professional baseball. Yeah. And so because he wasn't considered then an amateur in the ways we were talking about before, he had his medals taken away by the International Olympic Committee. And when Brundage becomes the president of the International Olympic Committee in 1952, a position he holds through 1972, he gets a number of letters from prominent people in the United States that are saying, look, Enough time has passed. This is ridiculous. $60 playing amateur, you know, basically semi-professional baseball. You got to get this guy's medals back. And I've looked through Avery Brundage's papers in detail and read many of the letters that he wrote back in response to these folks. Mm. And he was just adamant that, nope, he was professional. You break the rules, you pay the price. And so (laughs) it really took uh, getting rid of slavery, Avery Brundage, and and having that deep in the rearview mirror where you could finally have some kind of situation where Thorpe could get his kids these medals. And then ultimately, just like a year ago, they restored his name as the the one winner in the record books for the Olympics. Mm. And so, yep, Avery, slavery, Avery Brundage was really important to that. He was also important in the lead up to the Berlin Olympics. At that time, he wasn't yet a honcho at the International Olympic Committee, but he was a U.S. Olympic honcho. Right. And he did not want to boycott these Olympics. You know, anti-Semitism didn't bother this guy at all. Yeah, yeah. Can can you speak to some of the boycotting that did take place Mm -hmm. um, for those particular Olympics? Internationally, um, there were protests being held in Berlin. There there was boycotting leading up to Berlin. Obviously, again, we know the history between... Hitler, the Nazis, and the Jews. Um, Could you speak to some of that boycotting that clearly Avery Brundage did not want to be a part of? Absolutely, he (laughs) did not. And so, yes, in the United States, Canada, many other countries around the world, there was real concern about what they saw happening in Nazi Germany. And so in the United States in particular, there was a very rambunctious and successful boycott campaign 
that at one point had a little bit less than 50% of the population wanting to boycott those Olympics, which is kind of remarkable when you think about it. And in stepped our guy, Slavery Avery Brundage, who said, you know what, I'm going to go to Germany, I'm going to figure this out for myself, I'm going to get to the bottom of this, and I'll come back and I'll give you a report. Well, guess what? Slavery Avery <laughs> went to Germany, he was shepherded around by the Nazis, Yeah. he had the Nazi interpreters with him, he doesn't speak German, and they told him how wonderful it was. He came back to the United States and said, by gum, it's wonderful there, we have nothing wow. to worry about. And believe it or not, his views kind of held the day, that the campaign to boycott the Olympics was supported by a lot of different people, some very high-profile athletes. The NAACP at one point, they supported the boycott. And so, but it was really undercut. It was really kneecapped when Brundage went over to Germany, drank from this special cup that the Nazis gave him wine in, came back and said nothing to see there. And for whatever reason, that actually did help hold some sway. And the U.S. obviously did not boycott. But yeah. had they boycotted, we wouldn't have had the glory of Jesse Owens and many yeah. other people showing to people in Germany that the racist theories that their leader was propounding yeah. were absolute bunk. So there is a the sure. flip side of that. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I want everybody to go. I don't want to give the rest of this book away, but I, I do think it, you can clearly see why this is an important book to read. And I want you all to go out and make sure you check out and purchase this book. Again, it's titled The 1936 Berlin Olympics, Race, Power, and Sports Washing. I mean, it gives great in-depth history. Uh, it's so well-researched. Again, it gives media narratives, and it gives uh, quotes from different media publications, especially right here in the United States, and the way that these games and, and the history of these games were particularly framed um, is just a very well-written book. And again, it's a pocketbook series. I kind of like this, Jules. I like mm -hmm. this pocketbook idea from i forget who it is who published this thing uh let's see the sports society and the sport and society teaching pocketbook series mm -hmm. um but yeah I, I really like that format but uh yeah y'all need to go ahead and uh purchase this book it is very much so worth it i want to stick with the olympics but let's talk about the future of the olympics mm -hmm. as we've already dug deeply into some of the history of the olympic games and it's a future that we all should be concerned about because the games are not that far removed as far as the future is concerned from being held again right here in the United States on the West Coast and particularly in Los Angeles in 2028. Um, you and Dave Zirin, obviously Dave Zirin, a, a well-renowned journalist covering the intersection of sports and politics as well. Um, you two wrote a piece together in The Guardian in February, just about a month or so ago, about how Los Angeles, the headline at least, is how Los Angeles has already ceded too much power to the Olympic machine. Um, can you kind of dive deeper into how that is? Absolutely. So Los Angeles, as you noted, is slated to host the 2028 Summer Olympics. And Los Angeles just elected a new mayor. Her name is Karen Bass. Yes. And she seems great in a lot of ways. She's got some real progressive bona fides. She wants to move on homelessness really quickly. And obviously that's in the front of her plate. She's got some great ideas around that. I support her on her fight to stop homelessness in Los Angeles 100%. However, in watching the debates that she had with the guy she was running against, a fellow by the name of Rick Caruso, I noticed that every time the Olympics came up, she seemed like she wasn't totally up to speed. And so part of what we wanted to do with this was to say, okay, look, 
congratulations on your successful election. Yeah. Um, the Olympics are coming. They're coming pretty soon. And we want to try to help you get up to speed on these things. So right. for example, Devon, she said in one of the debates that she wasn't going to give a dime to the Olympic project. Well, guess what? The city of Los Angeles is on the hook for Already committed to $70 million, <laughs> okay, in cost overruns. And yeah. I hate to say it, but they're every single Olympics since 1960 for which there is reliable data has had cost overruns every single Olympics. So wow. you can bet they're going to probably have to tap into those funds. Uh, and she also started saying things like, we're going to get rid of homelessness. We aren't going to have homelessness by the time the Olympics roll around. I mean, that would be mm, great. I mean, don't get sure. me wrong. And I support her efforts to do so. But it just definitely felt like she was parroting a lot of the language of her predecessor, Mayor Eric Garcetti, who quite frankly was terrible when it came to the Olympics. And guess what? He's gone now, right? Yeah. He, you know, That's one of the things about the Olympics. The leaders that push it through here in the United States, Eric Garcetti, the mayor of L.A., He's long gone by the time the Olympics roll around. So there's right. little accountability. It's going to be on her plate is what we are trying to say. For sure. And so you're going to want to get to up to speed on these trends that are come with the Olympics. That's overspending. That's the militarization of public space. And you can already see in Los Angeles police licking their lips at the chance of increasing their ranks to yes. police the Olympics. For sure. It's all about displacement and, and pushing poor people out of the Olympic zone and gentrifying. You're seeing that all over the place in Los Angeles. Yeah. It's about greenwashing, saying how the Olympics are going to be super green, when in reality there's not that kind of follow-through. And it's about undercutting democracy. And so we kind of wanted to open up that conversation with the newly elected mayor and say, there's a lot more to this Olympics than you might think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm curious to hear your answer to this, because now that you mention the Olympic Games, and obviously 2028 is when they come to Los Angeles, um, but that is on a similar timeline as that of the elections, the, mm -hmm. the general elections here in the United States of America. Um, are there any trends or is it just more of a rarity to see sort of like propaganda come from election season that is operating on the same timeline, at least here in the United States of America in particular, as the Summer Olympic Games. And I know we haven't hosted a bunch of games here in America, but have you ever kind of caught on to anything in that regard? Yeah, when you think back on the history of the Olympics, the Summer Olympics that you're talking about in the United States, you can see numerous examples of how politicians try to sort of glom on to the Olympics to benefit themselves. Right. The last time the United States held the Olympics in the Summer Olympics was in California, Los Angeles, 1984. President Ronald Reagan, who was the former governor of California at that time, he boosted up those Olympics and said how important and great they were going to be, tried to ride the popularity of the games. Yeah. And you saw, you know, this is a Winter Olympics in 2002, but you saw then Mitt Romney uh, come in to sort of save the day after the huge crisis around the extreme corruption with those games. I mean, your your listeners will know about the bribery involved in, in Salt Lake City, where they were basically getting knee replacements for the spouses and parents of members of the International Olympic Committee, full scholarships to the kids of, of IOC members to go to college and, and tickets to the Utah Jazz basketball games, expensive violins, you name it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, after yeah. that all came out, Mitt Romney rolled in and kind of actually, you know, for all indications, did a pretty good job sweeping out the corruption and right. moving in a new path. And then my point is just that 
politicians use the Olympics to try to boost their profile. And right. those two are really good examples. For sure. And of course, Mayor Eric Garcetti was hoping he would get the same thing in Los Angeles. He was just uh, recently allowed to become the ambassador to India for jo- the Joe Biden administration right now. And so he does seem to be on the upward trajectory himself. And you can bet when he's making his case that he's talking about the great job he did to get Los Angeles the Olympics. <laughs> My goodness, Jules, you, you, you're coming at them hard here. I want to go more local, though, because obviously you've talked about the overspending that takes place with the Olympic Games. And a lot of that overspending comes down to the building of new facility, facilities, stadium building, these athlete villages that you alluded to earlier, amongst a bunch of other things. Um, but with your history of studying stadium building more so in connection with with the Olympics, amongst other things as well, obviously. Um, recently, news came out that the Hillsboro Hops, which is, I think, AAA now. AAA, they will be, or they're becoming AAA um, Major League Baseball program. High A, for sure. Um, Major League Baseball program, MILB, is what they call it, has decided that they are going to indeed build a new stadium. Now... The news was released, but the information was, it sort of felt vague in regards Mm -hmm. to what that process is going to look like, speaking to some of those expenses. Um, But you, as somebody that knows sort of the trends of, uh, of stadium building costs and how they tend to continue to hike and hike and hike and hike beyond maybe like the projected costs early on in the process, um, could you just sort of speak to some of those trends that maybe people here locally should just look out for as we do have this new stadium being built in Hillsboro for this minor league baseball team? Mm-hmm. We have a lot of experience with that right here in Portland, mm. in the Portland area, because of the fact that the Paulson family, which owns the Portland Timbers and Thorns, were in a similar situation when they wanted to refurbish the stadium, just like they're doing for the Hillsboro Hops. Yeah. Although it's going to co- it cost them $85 million. That's what they were asking from the public at that time, way back when the Timbers started being in Major League Soccer. And uh, there was a big fight here in Portland around that because it was going to come out of the general fund, which is, you know, really important fund for basic programming here in Oregon, in Portland in particular. And these are really rich guys. I mean, you know, like multi, multi millionaires like Henry Paulson, the former Treasury Secretary under President Bush, who's a partial owner of the Portland Timbers. Yeah. He had just donated some hundred million dollars, God bless him, to an environmental organization. So he certainly didn't need our money. So there was yeah. actually <laughs> quite a little bit of a fight there. And, you know, this is one of the things for us to keep our eyes out for. So for starters, actually, I was involved in that, full disclosure. Yeah. We won. Uh, we did not give them $85 million. They got 12 point some million dollars out of a special ticket tax for the Portland Trailblazers. So it was like sport to sport, which felt a little bit more just. Yeah, and for sure. I think it's worth looking carefully at the way they describe things. That's why I was interested to hear you talk about the press release, because I, too, found it quite vague. A lot of times when you're going to build a new stadium, we're told by the people building them that these are public-private partnerships. Well, if you talk to economists in the sports world, they will tell you that these public-private partnerships have a certain trend, and that is the public tends to pay 
and the private entities tend to profit from the gig. <laughs> and that's Simply just the sad truth about the deal. Right? They make it sound good. Oh, hey, public-private partnership. Hey, yeah. unicorns, a free beer, you know, kitty cats, et cetera. For sure. It's actually not that great when you start to look at the numbers in many cases. I would even argue most cases. And so we need to you know, interrogate that facade of public-private partnership. And in that press release you referenced, there was like, hey, we're going to share the burden. You know, Hillsborough is going to pay a little bit, and then the owners of the team are going to pay a little bit. Well, we need a little, a little bit more. Yeah. about who's paying for what and how much. Right, for sure, for sure, definitely. Um, certainly things to look out for. Let's switch it to the NBA, man. You All are right. you are from Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Obviously been here in Portland for quite some time now, but you're from Wisconsin. And I definitely saw last night that Drew and Giannis just went absolutely just off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Drew Holiday going for 51. Giannis had 38 with... 20-something rebounds and a bunch of assists and everything else that he did to stuff the stat sheet. Um, where you where you stand this year? How you feeling? The playing tournament is right around the corner. The Bucks obviously won't be in that. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll definitely be in the playoffs right now, the best record in the NBA. Um, how you feeling, man? Playoff time's almost here, and the guys seem to be grooving. I'm feeling great. Thanks for asking. <laughs> I'm feeling real good. I mean, there were some tough times to be a Bucks fan. Yeah. I, I grew up on it. My grandpa used to take me to games when I was really little. So I've been a Bucks fan for a long time. So I'm going to soak up every bit of this right now. It's for sure. Great. I mean, Drew Holiday, arguably the best two-way player in the game right now. Um, I love the way that Brooke Lopez is playing as well. He's um, crucial for, for your squad. He, he really is. He, he I is mean, crucial. You know, him and Holiday could be a first team all defense for the NBA. Agreed. We're going to see about that. But, yeah. And maybe Giannis. I mean, honestly, yeah. he's a great on defense Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. He's won a defensive player of the year award before. So, yeah. yeah. Well, they all say the defense wins titles. And I'm hoping yeah. that's true this year because I like the Bucks' uh, defense in general. Um, plus, you know, like you said, Chris Middleton hasn't even really been playing full force yet. So once he gets in his groove, which could hopefully be partway through the playoffs. Uh, hopefully the Bucks are going to be a, a tough team to beat. And more importantly for me, I just like watching them. I like the way they play. I like the way they get other players involved. I think they made some good pickups in Jay Crowder and others and I, uh, Joe Ingles. I, I just like their team. You know, I really have a tough time because uh, I, I have a friend, Chris Partee, and he and I go back and forth because I've been one to call Giannis, Drew, and Chris Middleton a big three. And obviously they lost in the playoffs last year to the Boston Celtics, took him to seven, but – they didn't have their full big three intact with Chris Middleton being out with the injuries. And he's still sort of dealing with those injuries. And I do think that as well as they tend to do in the regular season, that's not some, that's something that we've sort of gotten accustomed to. I think they got to be fully healthy to still go out and win the title. But I'll tell you, man, me as a huge Steph Curry fan and as somebody that would gladly take the chance to say that Steph Curry is the best basketball player in the world, in the last few years, the only person – the only person that has brought me some cause to pause in regards to saying that has been Giannis. Mm. Not LeBron James, hmm. not anybody else that you not Joker, who's yeah. winning all these MVPs. Like Embiid, not, uh, Embiid. not Embiid. Mm-hmm. It has been Giannis, man. Like to me, Giannis, again, first off, like in the most simply put way, nobody dominates both sides of the basketball to the magnitude that Giannis does, which would be my sole reason for saying he's the best player in the world. Now, with that said, 
you do got a guy like Steph Curry who obviously has the championships to show for it. And last one was a the last one was a huge one for him to win, I think, for his legacy and just proving how really great he was. It's sort of comparison Giannis's ability to dominate to Steph Curry's ability to revolutionize the entire sport. And that revolutionary element to Steph Curry's game still being intact today. And I really, really struggle between trying to determine who the best player in the world is. Is it Giannis for the reasons I've obviously said, or is it Steph who's revolutionized the game in ways that we've never seen before and is still having success at the highest of levels in doing that in particular? I struggle to say who's the best, man. (laughs) (laughs) It's a tough one. There's no question. I do want to pause and just say, I love the way you talk about these stars in the NBA because I feel like uh, I listen to your show regularly. I have enormous respect for Chris Partee and and you and all, all the folks that talk about the NBA here. You guys do it in a way that builds people up. Yeah. And and the thing that I get gets me down a little bit sometimes when I'm listening to other shows and and so on is that they use it as an opportunity to rip down the Joker or rip down Embiid in the process yeah. of boosting their guy. And I feel like we're in an incredible moment for the NBA. There's so many amazing players to just appreciate. We, we can just boost them without ripping down these others. So I, I just want to say I love the way that you you talk about that and appreciate that. And and Steph, I mean, how can you not love Steph if you love basketball? I mean, yeah. The, joy he brings to the game, the yes. skill he brings to the game, the way he's opened it up in the ways you've described. I mean, he has to be the most likable guy just about in the NBA. Maybe him and Giannis. I mean, they both have that kind of likability factor. Absolutely. Smile on their face, tough when they need to be. And yeah. And that's can... and that's part of what I love about Giannis as well, though, is Giannis, when most recently, at least one of the more recent times that I've seen him be asked who's the best player in the world is, he said Stephen Curry because Mm. Steph is the one who most recently was the best player on the team that won the championship. Um, But with that said, as a Warrior guy myself, as a huge Steph Curry fan, I'll be honest with you, I was far more scared for the Warriors to have to play the Bucks in the finals, which obviously could have happened realistically. The the Warriors ended up playing the Celtics. I was glad that that took place because for me, I kind of knew like, all right, the Celtics haven't really been here before. Hmm. And quite frankly, nobody on the Celtics is Giannis Antetokounmpo, who's not only been here before, but just a physical specimen that he is. And again, what he does dominating both sides of the ball is great. Yeah, the Celtics had the number one team defense, but I, again, I always had the confidence of knowing in that series of the Warriors and the Celtics, the Warriors will be okay because the Warriors have the best basketball player on the floor. Hmm. As good as a team as the Celtics were, having the number one defense, having a great wing tandem of Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, for me, even when the Warriors went down 1-0 or even went down 2-1, I could always hold on to well, Steph Curry's still the best player in this series. Again, I'm conflicted if there does end up being a chance, which there obviously is a chance, that the Warriors and the Bucks meet in the NBA Finals. It's a little bit harder for me to say that Steph Curry is the best player in this series. And that's the reason why I was glad that the Warriors were able to avoid the Bucks last year, regardless of the the Middleton situation, just knowing what Giannis did in the finals when he put up 50 to close out the Suns and knowing what he has the capability of doing and being as a basketball player. And knowing, quite frankly, to me, he's the only guy that, I would probably say is better than Steph Curry 
present day. So it was it was actually a relief for me as a Warrior fan to see y'all get eliminated. <laughs> I said, hey, man, if we get out the West, we're winning it all this year. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, maybe this year we'll get that. We'll, we'll have to sit down and watch the, the finals of Warriors-Bucks. That would be really something. That would be something for sure. That would be something. But I do want to kind of talk a little bit more about um, what you spoke to. I don't know if you saw recently, but Dan Lebatard kind of like blamed Stephen and Skip Bayless for like current debate culture in sports. Hmm. Um, and Lebatard, and he did it like to Stephen A's face, apparently. I didn't hear the podcast in particular, but Stephen A, who's promoting his his new memoir, his book that's out, I guess joined Lebatard's podcast. And Lebatard basically like said it right in front of him on the podcast that he and Skip have like ruined debate culture and sports and like the sports media landscape. I more so heard Stephen A come to his own defense on his own platform about what it was that Lebertard said. Um, but I think that kind of goes into what you were speaking to about these star players and the way that we at least try to speak about them. What What is your thoughts, just generally speaking? And it could be about debate culture. It could be about sort of just general equity, regardless, social equity, I should say, in the sports media landscape. But you as somebody who gets published time and time again, been in this sports media space for a long time, but can speak to it pretty in depth from more of a social lens. What What is your stance on just the way sports media and the direction of it is going from a mainstream standpoint and, and maybe even in other aspects as well? I don't think Lebatard is wrong that these two guys have had an enormous influence on the way we talk about sports. Mm -hmm. I view Smith and Bayless as quite different. Same. Um, Bayless for me is just full throttle toxicity. I just don't like the way he talks about players. <clears throat> I yeah. don't like the way he talks about the game. It's almost like there's no joy in it for him anymore. It might right. be just time to just stop. Stop. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Skip, if you're listening, think about it. Just think stop. <laughs> right? uh, I mean, I think that Stephen A has has different modes in ways that Bayless lacks. And I think sometimes he can slip into that negativity. And, and and I think that maybe just the style of them both just kind of shouting at each other all the time or at other people all the time doesn't work for me. I yeah. get that when one person starts shouting, the next, if you want to get a word in, you're going to have to start shouting. Right. They're, I think that the, the guy's right on that they've had an enormous influence. Um, but there's a lot of other possibilities out there. And I feel like there's just like kind of a, a new wave of kind of younger commentators who aren't there to tear you down. I mean, God, social media, I'm so glad it wasn't around when I was playing sports because, mm. I mean, people would have said all manner of horrible things about me and it would have been deserved. You know, I had my off nights for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I can't even imagine like going to your phone after the game and all these people, you know, like. After the game at halftime right, these after, days. <laughs> right. <laughs> During the that, game. Checking their, I mean, I can't even imagine. Yeah, it, it's a real thing. At right. halftime, and trust me, I, you know, I've been around some things during the game <laughs> like really? oh my god maybe not for guys that are particularly out there playing but if you are on the team and maybe you're off you know or for whatever reason it could be an injury whatever the mm -hmm. case may be like you you can have your phone on the bench essentially yeah. and it's it's just kind of normalized now. That's wild. I mean, that's absolutely... And, and when this anonymous, that's one thing. So at least when Stephen A or, you know, Skip Bayless goes at somebody, you know who he's going at. Like, yeah. it's face-to-face, -face, it's out in public. But, like, when Bonerhead69 on Twitter, like, right. comes at you, <laughs> yeah. it's a little different, you know? For and then sure. they just don't stop, and they just don't stop. And right. And 
you know, that can, uh, you know, just make your life unpleasant. And like as much pressures on these young men to perform in the NBA and other sports, uh, I follow soccer, of course, really carefully. Uh, I just sort of worry for them a little bit, like the the mentality that it takes to sort of brush that stuff off is easier said than done. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, I, I think that that's a very valid point. And I do think that I, I do agree with you. Obviously, St- Stephen A might be the most influential person in sports media today, <laughs> just with the success that he's having, obviously. Um, and I also like to see sort of the trend of he's trying to like venture out now into other things. And that's something that fortunately I had people like yourself to mentor me sort of early on you as an educator. And then obviously our relationship beyond you as my professor at Pacific university, um, where I had the fortune of not coming into the sports media space feelings feeling as if I had to be boxed in and reach a certain point for me to grapple with, you know, maybe more serious topics, more intersectional topics, more societal based topics that intersect with sports rather than just what's happening inside the lines and not on the edges. And, um, I feel like somebody like a Stephen A, I actually like the direction he's going in because I think he was one of those people, if I had a criticism of him, that kind of stayed within that sort of box Mm -hmm. that you're supposed to be in until he finally got enough influence and probably enough financial freedom as well for him to now venture out to where now his podcast is basically politics and entertainment amongst other things. But like he's not recapping games as you would see him do on his show first take on sports center. Mm-hmm. And I do like to see sort of just the bolder stance that more sports journalism is more sports journalists, excuse me, are taking and being able to go out the box of, what it is that these particular these particular entities want you to do and cover and sort of challenging them to allow you to cover more beyond just what it is that traditionally has been covered. Well, and you deserve credit. You know, Devon, you were on this early. Your podcast from the very beginning was about sports, politics, and culture. Yeah. From the very beginning. And so you realized this early on, that this was going to be the way the world was going to pivot, the media and sports world. I mean, I think you mentioned Dave Zirin before. I think he deserves some flowers, too. Absolutely. I mean, he One was of the on pioneers this. of that type of coverage. Absolutely. And he's one of those guys that's just like, yes, and all the time, just like yeah. you. It's not like a, a, some kind of fierce rivalry with people, but he's like, oh, yes, get this person involved. He's been on your show Absolutely. before, right? Didn't yep. hesitate to come on your show. He wants to boost you up and, you know, and so there's just a lot to be said for people that have figured that kind of thing out. And now it's kind of hard to think of becoming a sports journalist and not yeah. getting involved in the politics and culture. I mean, that's sure. how much folks like you, folks like Dave have really shifted things to the point where now Stephen A almost has no choice he if he wants no to choice. be relevant. Yeah. And he deserves credit, too, because he's been doing some of the shifting along the way. Yeah, but, definitely. But it's often the people that are unheralded that don't get the kind of flowers at the end when Stephen A. just rolls in and capitalizes off to all these other people's hard work over the yeah. years and their principled stance to go against the grain. When you started Wake Up and Win, not everybody was doing politics, sports, culture. For sure. Now it's much more common. Absolutely. And so you were part of that flow, and I think you deserve credit, too. Absolutely. I had a conversation on the podcast recently about like the definition of woke uh, you've probably seen the clip you might have heard yeah, that that heard episode it. Mm-hmm. and it was like connecting it back to you know when this podcast was first created and then it got me to thinking even deeper like i've been taking some of the stances that i've taken 
but the landscape, at least in my world in particular, has not been that far removed and as far as being sort of opposite of what some of the stances are that I've been taking. And again, fortunately for me, I was able to go through things such as higher education, things such as experiences, what experiences well to be grounded in kind of who I am and what it is that I do in this particular space. But it even got me thinking like right now, I am the lone African-American commentator for Division I basketball in this state. Wow. I, I, I was just thinking through it, like, you know, and I often say, like, I insert myself in these spaces because clearly it's needed. And mm-hmm. it still is, clearly. But Oregon, Oregon State, University of Portland, Portland State, play-by-play or analyst, I'm the only one of color. I'm the only black one, at least in particular. Some of them, you know, some people may be a white appearing and of color, and I don't know about the percentages of their ethnicities, but I, it's quite apparent what I am I got you. <laughs> when, yeah. when you see me at the scorer's table and calling these games. But it's like, yeah, no, um, you know, we, we still have a long way to go in regards to mm-hmm. – some of that coverage that has become popularized to actually become opportunities. You Mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? And so for me, it's like just thinking about it from that lens, like I feel like I hold a sense of responsibility because I have, I've earned an opportunity, but also for whatever reason have been able to access these particular opportunities as well. Or this one, in this case of being the only black division one basketball commentator in this entire state to where There's a responsibility for me to have to stay grounded because if I don't, then I'm almost in a way cheating the next Devon Pouncey to be able to have access and the opportunity that I'm even able to have. And I want to see greater for whoever comes behind me. But just alone knowing the limited access to the position that I hold is just quite an interesting dichotomy, if you will, to think about just my race and the access that I have in a place that just doesn't look like me, but also being grounded in my identity and my race and who I am as I gain access to some of the spaces that I've had the fortune to be able to. And again, earned it as well. Yes, you did. Don't ever let anybody tell you otherwise. That's for sure. No, I mean, you really, that's beautiful the way you broke that down. I mean, you have an extra responsibility. You recognize it. You embrace it. It's really important what you're doing right now, Devon. Definitely, definitely. Well, Jules, let them know where to follow you. Appreciate you for joining as always. But uh, let folks know where to follow you. Sure. Let them know where to purchase your book, find your work, so on and so forth. Yeah, I think the social media I use the most is Twitter. So it's just my name, Jules Boykoff. You losing that blue check? Sorry to cut you off. Oh, yeah. I'm not paying that guy a dollar. Because you got a blue check. Yeah, the old fashioned way I did. Yeah. The old fashioned way. Yes, yeah, sir. <laughs> yeah, that'll be gone, I think, in the next couple of days. Wow. Uh, yeah, that's, that's life. No problem. But yeah, sure. I'm on Twitter here and there. And um, I, if you want to read some of my work, I also put a lot of it up at my website, which is just julesboycoff.org. Absolutely. Well, on that note, we are going to leave y'all the only way that we know how, and that is to stay woke and go, go in. in. There we go. <laughs> 